Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to this Textile Talk podcast. I'm Gail Cowley and I'll be your host today. Joining me is Susan Hensel, a multidisciplinary artist with a 50 year plus career who combines a mixed media practice with embroidery across digital and manual platforms. So Susan, it's lovely to have you with us. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you, Gail. It's a pleasure. So I wonder if I could start off by asking if you could tell us more about the type of textiles you create and also the the methods that you use. Sure. Um, I work in digital embroidery which I'm pretty sure your students know what it is, but basically it is images or swaths of color, in my case, designed in the computer and stitched out on a computer-aided embroidery machine. Typically that's used to make just simple images or monograms for clothing. But I'm trained as a sculptor. And as soon as I got a look at one of these machines, I knew that there was a way I could use it. Um, I'm highly technology oriented, having grown up with an engineer father in the 50s. So I'm not scared of technology. He probably had you know, the, the first uh, graphing calculator on the face of the earth. I mean, gizmos and gadgets were everywhere in our house. And where I grew up in Ithaca, New York, which is the home of Cornell University, we also had in the early 1960s um, computer classes in our secondary school, in our uh, would be high school in the United States. So I was exposed very early, so I didn't have any of that fear going in. And the things that I make, sometimes they are pictorial, Yes, but mostly I am making modules that I that are designed to bend into sculptures so they will have permanent folds and that also are designed to shimmer at different points on the spectrum depending on what direction you're looking at them from. So they are... Um, a little bit perplexing in terms of color. It's a little hard to figure out how this is happening, but I'm making use of basic physics or the basic ways that our eyes mix things optically. I'm also making use of the the particular feature of polyester embroidery thread, which is that it is basically a triangle cross-section under the microscope. How fascinating. I did not know that. I didn't know it either, but I had been noticing these unusual um, color events happening in what I was experimenting with. And so I started exploring the, the history of the threads. And rayon thread is very round and it's very beautiful. It's very lush but it doesn't scatter the color 
in the same way that the polyester thread does. And that's because of that triangular, more or less triangular shape. And what that does is it makes the, the light bounce in multiple directions. And that's where all color comes from, is the bouncing of light off of a surface. So if the surface is blue, what bounces off is colors in the blue spectrum. But because this is triangular, it'll, it'll bounce off at some really odd angles, which will take you further through the blue spectrum. You won't get just one shade of blue. And that's why it sparkles so much. And then I make use of what I'm stitching on, which is polyester felt, and I let that color show through. So I'm making all kinds of color choices. And I'm usually only using two, maximum three different colors of thread on a purposefully chosen color of felt to get the shimmer that I want or the changeability that I want. How much of, of that? I mean, that, that's, that just sounds amazing to me, but I'm really interested to know how much of it you're able to plan in ahead or are you sort of hoping for a what I would term a happy accident or, or is it something that you can actually plan for that you know how it will look at the design stage? Yes to both of those questions in a way. <laughs> <laughs> There's a tremendous amount of intuition that goes into this much more than than most people expect with a technology-driven technique. Mm -hmm. um, but the longer I do this, the more I can predict what the colors are going to do. The, discovering all of this about the thread was a combination of research and happy accidents. I noticed something happening and I wanted to be able to get more of a handle on it. But that being said, there are all kinds of accidents that happen, including um, choosing the wrong thread cone. <laughs> when you're setting up the machine, I have 15 colors of thread on there, but I'm only mm -hmm. using you know two or three of them. And it's real easy to choose cone number one when you meant to choose cone number two when you're setting it up. And sometimes those happy accidents take you places too. Yeah, I'm sure. So I suppose my next question will be, what sort of machine are you using? Because it, it doesn't sound like anything that I think many of our listeners would no. have used. Yeah, I started out on a single needle um, embroidery machine that had a computer in it. And it was not a very good machine. I think I just had a lemon, to tell you the truth. It, mm. It's a good brand, but it, it, that particular machine had problems. But I learned how to do it in there. And I also learned that with a single needle machine, you're going to spend all your time changing the threads by hand, mm -hmm. threading and re-threading, threading and re-threading. So I went from that to a 10 needle um, brother machine, which allows me to do automatic color changes. Because when you put the design in the machine, you then tell the machine, on this step, it's supposed to be red. On step two, it's supposed to be blue. And you just key it in. It's really quite easy to do. And now most of my work is done on a Recoma 15 needle machine. Um, and the reason that I use this machine is because it's got a very, very, very large hoop. I can make um, modules that are 
18, 20 inches by up to almost 48 inches wide. That is large, isn't it? It really is. Mm -hmm. When I found that machine, um, it was really worth worth it to me to take out the loan to get it. And mm -hmm. I paid off the loan on the 10 needle machine whose maximum size is about seven inches by 10 inches. Which is going to be very limiting. It's very limiting. Um, and so um, working on that machine, I learned to work modularly so that I could build things into larger objects. And I apply that same technique to this humongous hoop. <laughs> you know, um, I'll be delivering tomorrow, packing up today, um, three wall-mounted sculptures that are 96 inches tall. My goodness. And the reason I can do that is because I can work in modules and then sew the modules together mm. and then attach them to armatures. Yes, yeah. yeah. So what, what sort of armatures do you use? Are you using wire or? No, I usually am building a combination of foam core board, a nice thick foam core on a plywood base. And then um, usually just that very thin plywood like we use underneath tile floors, which would be half a half a centimeter maybe. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um and then to keep it from warping, you need to put a a frame of some sort on the back. So um just thin strips of wood built mm. into a square like you would for a canvas, but affixed to the back to keep it stable. So I can pin the um fabric down as I glue it in place. Mm. And sometimes the pins are a decorative element. I'll use found objects. I'll carve walnut um, if I need walnut. It's such a beautiful wood. And um, I'll use what I need to get to where I'm going. And where I'm going at first is driven by color. There's no question. I mean, these these colors and color combinations drive me forward. So I stay with one color combination for a very long time because it suggests more ways to be. So that's why there's so much blue in my work right now, because mm -hmm. I've been working with this blue and gold and purple combination that just flies into your eyeballs somehow. <laughs> and it suggested issues about climate change and water um, health and things like mm. that. Which is obviously very of the moment, isn't it? I think we're all yeah. very aware just now of, of some of the, the problems and the planet surrounding us. Oh, yeah. The planet will outlive us, but in the meantime, let's see what we can do to live with the planet. Oh, absolutely, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd really enjoyed looking at the photos you sent me. And um, I also realized that you had some gorgeous uh, wooden frame work. Is that um, the walnut that you that you carve yourself? Yes, it is. Yeah. My goodness, You're, you, know, you, you have many talents. <laughs> Well, like I said earlier, I was trained as a sculptor. Mm. Um, my majors in college, I have two majors, and and one was sculpture and the other was painting. And I'm not a particularly good painter, but I can apply those skills as needed. I can mix color that works and things like mm -hmm. that, but I'm not, um, 
I'm not in love with the the paintiness of paint. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can sympathize with that because when I when I was at university from my first degree, I I did a design degree. Um, and we had to go across four different. So we, we did ceramics, yeah. wood, metal, and textiles. And I think getting that breadth and depth and bringing other materials into your work, it really adds another dimension, doesn't it? It does. It does. I don't believe that it is necessary to stay with one media. Mm. Um, you use, for me, you know, for some people it is, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, I'm, I'm always seeking to use the medium that expresses what I need to express. And, and I'm very willing, obviously, when you look at things to combine them. I put plumbing parts in there. I mean, there's <laughs> things, you know, out there in the hardware stores, mm -hmm. uh, you know, little brass screens and washers and things I find on the ground. It's, you know, the world yeah. is the oyster. <laughs> so do you have a, a very large area that you can have all of these things out together? Um, your machine, all of the, the different materials and objects that may, that you may use. You must need a very large studio area. Yeah, I need probably more than I have. I, I get claustrophobic, but I own a, an old building, old for the U.S. It's a little over 100 years old. And I live in a two-bedroom apartment upstairs. The first floor is my main studio. And the footprint is about 1,000 square feet, but the usable area is closer to 800. And then there's a basement where I have my wood shop. And um, we also build boxes down there. And Part of my wood shop is in the garage. Oh, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? To have, have so much space. Oh, but I can't tell you, Gail, how much I wish all of it was on one floor and that it was 3,000 square feet. That would be wonderful. <laughs> what, I, what I do not have enough of is wall space or storage space. So when you think of things being 96 inches tall, um, that takes up a lot of wall space. I have to clear the wall to take the photograph of it, of course. Um, and because you know, everything has to be photographed and documented and inventoried. And because it's textiles and wood and things, I cannot store it in a moldy basement. No, of course, you no damp or anything like that. Yeah, so I have to use professional storage which is wonderful. And I'm actually going there today to deliver back some things that have been on exhibition and a couple of new things, and then to pick up a lot of pieces that are going out tomorrow to uh, a large exhibition. Um, but what's wonderful about this professional storage, they meet me at the, the bay door and they have all the boxes ready for me. And oh, they how wonderful. I don't, and they put them in my rental van. This is so wonderful. I can't oh. tell you. Oh, I'm sure. It does sound, <laughs> sounds like a dream. It is. It is. It's a dream I have to pay for. But once I started working in textiles, and, and when I started working in textiles that were three dimensional, I had to build 
specific kinds of boxes so they could ship and I had to protect them from wild temperature and humidity changes. And, and these aren't lib textiles, they're on armatures, most of them. So think of that when I started. <laughs> no, I don't think we any of us ever anticipate the sort of room that we're going to need in yeah. a studio, do we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that you're a, a gallery director as mm. well. We often hear that textiles are very much considered to be the poor cousin of art mm. and not valued quite as highly. Would you agree with that? Not at all. No. <laughs> I, it, and some of it comes from us. The blue chip galleries are showing textiles. Um, I don't always think they're showing the best because I don't think they know what they're looking at sometimes. But um, they are pushing them a lot in the last few years. But I had an interesting conversation a few years ago. It was before the pandemic hit. I had flown to Florida to attend um, a learning convention with the Ricoma manufacturers. And so they had training for us on using our machines, taking apart our machines and putting them back together and speakers coming in to talk to us about, you know, putting pictures on our hoodies. And I had so many people say to me, oh, well, I'm not an artist. You know, then you're an artist. Oh, I, I said, no, <laughs> what you're doing is also creative. We're doing the same kinds of things. I'm just across the street from you or next door. I'm just doing it a little differently. Um, so some of that comes from us. Oh, I'm only a textile worker. I'm only an embroiderer. And I'm, I'm guilty of it too, trust me, I am. But, you know, I'm only a 72-year-old Midwestern artist. Uh, yeah, you know, the only is what we need to work to get rid of. What we do is important. And there are people who focus on the historic nature of, of our medium. Unbelievable people. And that... Mm -hmm great value. And if it is historical reproduction, it has its place in, in the market, in history museums, in university museums and university collections and textile museums. It's got its place mm -hmm. and it is fundamentally sound. And then there are the people who take it to a different place and it's not further, it's just different. Mm -hmm. um, and it might be the kinds of things I mean, this is where a lot of us start. It might be the kinds of things that you take to um, sidewalk shows or to um, your local festivals or your local fairs. And, and those are the more utilitarian things mostly or the things that a lot of people can identify with. Maybe the imagery is something that nine out of 10 people will love because they recognize it. It does things for them. But then if your work doesn't fit in that section, then you have to start looking at galleries and universities and things like that. And that's kind of what happened to me. And it's also part of that thing for all of us as makers when you run out of friends and family to give things to. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people will, will resonate with that, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, most of us, 
most of us who were out in the world in what looks like a bigger way, that's how we got there. It was it was by tearing our hair out, going, "What am I going to do with mm -hmm. all this stuff?" But how how do you how did you make that that leap, Susan? Because it is quite a leap, isn't it? It's, to go... it's, a, it's a huge leap, and I don't know. I mean, I am very, very successful at getting the work seen. Mm. And so I, I, I see the work as doing its work in the world because I firmly believe that what we do is extremely important as human beings. As, as human beings, we've, we've marked our objects since, you know, probably before language, right? Something humans do, whether it's for magic, for identifying it as our object um, for religious purposes or just because. We've always fundamentally done these things. And so the objects have resonance and that resonance needs to be shared. And so I've got all these beautiful objects that when they're doing their work, help make people slow down and go, oh, and that's what we, what all of us need in this hyped up world. I do sell some, but I haven't found the I haven't found the sweet spot yet to tell you the truth. Mm. But I sure know how to get shows and I can get them in universities. I can get them in um, kind of like B-list galleries. Um, and definitely all the proliferation of online shows are all kinds of things now. Mm. Yeah, over the pandemic, over the last sort of two, two and a half years, when the world just changed around us, really, mm -hmm. um, so much went online. And um, we suddenly started to see a lot of things that we would have visited, um, such as shows, galleries, suddenly became more of an online event yeah how, how did you i mean did did you notice changes going on during that time in the way that you worked or the way that you yes. um, sh displayed your your work yes huge changes mm -hmm. um when the pandemic hit here in the u.s and we had our first shutdowns every single one of my um shows that was scheduled for the coming year was either canceled or delayed two or three times yeah i'm talking everything yeah it's just shocking isn't it the, yeah. the way that everything just came to a halt yeah everything and meanwhile um i had been working for a couple of years with um the agency in florida and um i said to them th this i've got to get people into my website, because I've got so much stuff. I think what I want to do is small online shows on my website. And so they trained me up and I started doing that. So I, I kind of started doing that of just a few months into the pandemic, because I had to find a way to take control of something, anything, yeah. right? You know that yeah, feeling. Absolutely, yes. It felt as though it was all getting away from us, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so that that was kind of my entry. And then on the flip side of that, you know, I had been, um, I mean, I've been a gallery director on and off for probably 30, 35 years. And um, I knew about artsy.net. I certainly had used it for a long time just to look at art and to do research about artists and to read their um, written 
materials. It's a very, very good website. It was the first online gallery-specific website to present artwork internationally from established galleries. Individuals don't get individual pages there. Galleries get pages on there. And I suddenly thought, well, how much does this cost? I have a gallery. And I had closed down most of the gallery program here in the bricks and mortar um, building because I really needed to return to the studio. And so I continued putting people in my shop windows because they're very large. I can't leave them empty. And I looked into Artsy and it took a while for them to get back with me, but it was within my budgetary constraints. Mm -hmm. So I reopened the programming of Susan Hensel Gallery at that point, focusing on artists from the Midwest. So from Minnesota, um, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, that kind of area, and who had a particular focus on materiality, that who were driven by the action of what they were doing. And so I'm showing people who often would be found in the craft area. I have um, Martha Bird, who's a very abstracted um, basket maker. I've got Christopher Rowley, who does um, tufting. And now that's rug stuff, but not in his hands. The pictorial nature of what he does, he's actually doing a punch needle style, but he's thinking about getting a tufting gun. Gorgeous stuff. Um, I have a printmaker who does um, hand stitching with her prints, and I've admired her work for years. Um, and I've got a painter out of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan who is a colorist like I've never seen before. Just astonishing work. Her name is Linda Ferguson. And uh, a dear friend, because, you know, you have to be nice to your friends, but she's wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Um, Kim Matthews, who's an astonishing sculptor and colorist. So I've got this group of like six or seven people, Daphne Coop, who works in found wood that she carves and she makes um, small and large wall pieces. So they function as abstract paintings, but they're heavily carved. There are um, insets of broken glass and they're colored and all kinds of things happen and just gorgeous things and started promoting that. And um, little by little, um, we've been at it two years and we've doubled the eyes on the work at a few sales and the next step in year three will be to begin to specify these artists to my list of art consultants so because i also work with art consultants from time to time i'm really interested to hear you sort of talk about the kind of time scale that that takes very often when i speak with our students I hope I'm not I'm not being too derogatory to them, um, but they very often are expecting something to happen. I won't say overnight, but you know within a month or two. And it's really interesting to hear you um, just express just how long some of these things can take. You know, from originally starting to coming to fruition, and in fact to be able to make any money out of them as well. But the other thing that your students need to know, I mean, there there are a couple things. 
it does take time, but most of the really famous artists that we can think of, with the exception of, you know, mega stars like Damien Hirst, mm -hmm. most of them have university jobs. Yes. Mm -hmm. Most artists have jobs. Even Felidia Barlow, who has shown at um, the Venice Biennale, who's shown all over the world, is carried by, I think, three or four galleries. Mm. She's got a full-time job teaching yeah. college. Yeah, and which which is, is makes it hard work, doesn't it? You have yeah, to be yeah. committed. You have to be committed to do that. Well, and there are ways to do it. Part of it is, it's kind of a paradigm shift. The what I, because I deal with this with my artists and with artists in general, because I mentor also. And your art can be your career, but your career doesn't necessarily pay your bills. Yes, very true. Okay, you you mm -hmm. hope you hope that it can at least pay its expenses, or or whatever you have budgeted for it, and then you have a job which you may also love, of course. You might be two parallel careers, but that's the norm. Mm. That absolutely is the norm. And one often cross-pollinates with the other, doesn't it? I think if you would, well, my personal view would be that if I was spending all day, every day creating, I think I would find that quite challenging. Mm -hmm. Whereas sometimes, just having that change in between how you spend yeah. your days, what you spend them doing, one can actually cross-pollinate, one section of your life can cross-pollinate with the other and make the whole thing a richer experience all round. Yeah. Um, for me, the transitions between the two are difficult. But mm -hmm. what I find um, is that my day, any actively exhibiting artist day, whether they have an outside job or not, has a tremendous amount of administration in it. Um, and so we have to, you know, you have to carve out time with the materials. Um, I happen to be recovering from a serious injury, which um, almost disabled me. And I have to have physical therapy, like th up to three appointments a week right now. Yeah, that definitely reduces my time in the mm -hmm. in contact with materials. But I've applied some of the habits that I've been developing over the years toward productivity. And they're, they're two key ones for me. And it applies, frankly, to any independent field. Pastors write to me saying, how do you do it? I go, it's just like what you do. You got to show up to write the sermon, mm. you know. So first, you got to show up. And when I've mentored people like who are trying to fulfill grants, I go, "But I have a job, and I'm so tired." I'm going, "Yeah, I know, but can you stop by the studio on the way home for ten minutes?" Well, yeah. And if all you do is write a list for the next day or your shopping list, I don't really care. But if you show up, you'll begin to establish the habit. Of showing up. That's so true. Uh, so true. I know with our students, you know, sometimes they do, they struggle on, on 
on keeping momentum going in yeah. that coursework. I mean, just just sort of as you say, you know, you have a job, um, and, and, you, and you've got kids. You've yeah, got yeah, you don't feel very well. Never. Or, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, one of the people I'm working with right now has a complex living situation. Um, she lives in a multi generational household, and she's basically the caretaker for everybody. Yeah. And she has an outside job. She's a practicing artist. And there are plenty of times when she really can't work on her work, and that's okay. But one of my mantras also, beyond just showing up, is if you have five minutes, you use five minutes. Yeah. And then the other thing is, they're like there's kind of like a four-part to this, claiming your space. Now, I've got a generous space. I wish it was larger. I've got a generous space. But if your space is a corner in your kitchen, own that space. If you have to put everything away, you know, six times a day, you're never going to get anything done. It's very tough. I, I know I, I, I often say to my students that if you can use 10 minutes on the train, perhaps in the way to work, to do a little bit of research yep. or just to plan the next time you're able to spend time with material, machine out, yep. whatever it might be, and then try and plan perhaps longer sessions where you do get the machine out for that afternoon. And if you have to take yep. over the dining table or, as you say, corner of the kitchen to do it. Um, but then when you do it, you try and get the most out of it because you've thought about what you're going to do in that period of time. That's- Absolutely. And that's part of the showing up. And that time on the train is part of the showing up. Mm. It absolutely is. Um, Everything that we do in our lives affects what we do. And we all have complex lives. And the other thing that I know a lot of people struggle with is just taking it seriously. And it takes, you taking themselves seriously, just because it is not an obvious immediate commodity like toilet paper right yeah we all understand those daily things and we live in capitalist societies your students and i who and our our cultures tend to equate value with what things will sell for yes very true and there are other values involved here in addition to that because certainly we all hope that we will sell some of this work. We all hope that it will go do its work in somebody's home or in an institution. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of ways our work can go do its work in the world. It can make the world a kinder, gentler place. I mean, I even remember, this was something that came up to me a couple of weeks ago, I was just talking to somebody and and it was like, what's one of your my deep memories of textiles and it was of the embroidered pillowcases that my mother made. Mm. And as a child, I treasured those. Now, do they why, do they belong in a museum somewhere? No. I mean, these were purchased designs, but what they did for me as a child was that they brought me peace. They brought me beauty. They brought me texture because I've always been very, um, tactile, and they brought me my mother's love. Oh, absolutely, yes. I I have both my mother and my godmother were um, embroidery teachers. 
Yeah. So it was something that I grew up with. And, mm -hmm. and for me as well, it was also a way of spending time with them because mm -hmm. I, I would perhaps, it might just have been a, a small cheap kit that I'd been bought, but it would mean that I could ask them to show me a stitch to correct something I'd done yeah. and I could spend real quality time with them. Well, you know, this other part of of textiles in particular is, you know, we're part of a deep history of making um, that's really kind of extraordinary when you allow yourself to think about it. Mm. Um, I studied with a dyer spinner weaver named Judith McKenzie. And one of the most profound things that she ever said um, that has just stuck with me and it had to do with the fact that we are in our, we are physically in touch with textiles from birth to death. Yeah. We're born and we're swaddled. Mm -hmm. We wear clothing. We sleep it in bed linens and we're buried in a shroud essentially. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a thought. I had never considered it in that way before, but it is quite a thought when, when I hear you say that. Yeah, I hadn't either until she said it. It was like, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, she's right. Yeah. And the history of this, because I'm, I'm also a spinner and a dyer, although I haven't been spinning as much the last couple of years, but, you know, the discovery of all these things is remarkable. And it's because we're fiddlers, you know. <laughs> I mean, we've all been fiddlers. You know, it's built into the the human body, I guess. is just, yeah. oh, diddle, diddle, diddle with this leaf. Oh, look, there's something inside it. Mm -hmm. you know, fiddle, fiddle, fiddle with this cocoon. Oh, look. Yeah. That, it's a thread. Huh. Yeah. It's that thing. That thing's interesting, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. It's that fiddling that we do. So yeah, yeah. No, it, it it's true. Um, and I don't know. Textiles does take up a huge part of our lives, whether we, we we know it or not, or we're actually aware of it on a daily basis or not. Memory there as well, as you're saying of your mother's pillowcases. I hadn't thought of those pillowcases in years, mm. and I was just talking with an embroiderer, and it was like, oh. I remember, and it's an early memory, probably four years old or so. Yeah. Is what I remember it from. I always wanted those pillowcases. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember they weren't actually embroidered, but I do remember having some lovely brushed cotton sheets when I was very small. Um, it felt gorgeous against your skin as a child. Yeah. They were really smooth, really warm. So, yes, I think we all have early memories of textiles in some form or other. Yeah, yeah, and we just don't realize it because they're so ubiquitous. One of the other things that I really wanted to ask you was about what you're working on right now. I know that you have an exhibition coming up. It would be lovely if you could tell us a little bit about that because I'm sure that some of the listeners would like to to either view or visit or, or could they visit online? I, I hope they will be able to. I am showing... The show is called At Play in the Fields of Color Perception. And it's actually part of a body of work that is beginning to travel. And the way that's happened is because two agencies said yes, and another one called me and begged for it. So that's cool. 
yeah, that's how you make traveling shows. You develop bodies of work and then you start mm -hmm. pitching it places. So this is a, a local civic gallery theater complex and it's one of the larger ones in the area. And they have a very strong art program. And I will have something like 35 pieces in the very large public lobby of this building. And so, I, boy, I can't remember how many feet long it is, but it's very, very long. And it'll be seen from the street. And then there's an upstairs lobby someone else will have. And then there's an interior gallery, which is the member show this time. And um, I'm excited about the work. This is almost retrospective in nature. Uh, most of the work was done during the pandemic, a little bit just prior. I think the earliest work in the show is 2019, but most of it was done during um, 2021 and 2022. And it involves um, two major bodies of work, the chromatic group, which is working across the color wheel with um, some of the color effects I was talking about earlier. And then the second half of the group is what I call the neotectonic period. Um, and that has to do with climate change and its recent earth changes is what neotectonics means. And those are the more multimedia pieces. That's where you'll see the textiles with walnut or with um, antique pipe molds of all things that I discovered a few years ago. And, and then there's some pieces in between that will kind of connect. It's all sculptural. None of it is, all hangs on the wall because it has to be wall work here. And uh, none of it has a, a classic frame and I love this stuff and I actually love this setup because the only way to look at it is to walk along the wall. And, and if people are paying attention, they'll begin to see the color changes, which is just lovely. Yeah. I suppose that um, going back a little way to what we were talking about previously regarding online uh, shows and, and the changes that happened during the pandemic yeah you just can't see it online you you have to be there it is a an experience in itself and yeah well and the other thing is um at the moment i don't remember entirely what images i sent you but some of the most striking images are from the chromatic series they look monumental mm. and a couple of them are, but a lot of them are only um, about the width of my shoulders. Yeah. They're quite yeah. modest. Mm. And so photography can mislead you. But what I'm hoping with this show um, um, at play in the fields of color perception is that they will do a video. The, and I will send you a link if they do. They they usually do with their shows. Oh, that would be great. Yes, it thank you. Lovely. And often interview the artists because um, I've worked with this group before and I've been a juror for them before. It's the Hopkins Center for the Arts. And I deliver the work tomorrow and it um, they hang it, thankfully. <laughs> and... and and the opening is Thursday night, just a couple nights from now. So by the time this podcast goes live, it will be up. 
Wonderful. So will you be there on opening night or? Yes, I will. Yes. Um, yes. I'll be the short old ladies probably sitting in a chair as much as possible because mm -hmm. it was my hip that got injured. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm doing very well, but yeah, I still got another six months or so to go. Oh, so. That's, that's, that's quite a time for you, isn't it? Oh my goodness. It was shocking. So, mm. Oh dear. That's well, you know what? That's part of life, isn't it? And all kinds of balls will be thrown through your window. Some of them are fun balls. Some are cute balls. <laughs> some of them are baseballs. Some are bowling balls, you know? Mm, yeah. and, and that's just life. And so you figure out based on work habits. I'm happiest when I'm with materials and when I'm playing with tools. I can't tell you how ecstatic I was to cut wood. <laughs> <laughs> But you, you, I mean, just from obviously from speaking to you over a relatively short amount of time, you obviously have an incredibly positive and can-do attitude in general. Yeah, I mean, I have to work at it. You know, yeah. have I cried buckets over this? Of course I have. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm not yeah. a superwoman, but, you know, appearances to the contrary. <laughs> Do you do you ever take commissions for pieces, Susan? Or, yes, or? I do, mainly through mm -hmm. art consultants um, for like architectural environments. I was I was hired, I think it was last year, to do two substantial pieces for the new Four Seasons luxury boutique hotel here in Minneapolis. Um, Wonderful. Yeah, and I was hired by somebody out of Atlanta, mm. Georgia, to do it. So it was kind of funny to have to send it to Georgia when I knew it was going to be down the road. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you enjoy that as much? I mean, do you find that? No. Yeah, because no. someone, somebody else is obviously interfering slightly with the full creative process there, aren't yeah. they? There's all... sometimes a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can imagine yeah, there there can be a lot of micromanaging that is frustrating. Mm. Uh, and there were changes I needed to make in this commission that that I, I I made them. And I don't think that it hurt it per se, but I think it would have been stronger artwork if I had been allowed to provide it in the way I wanted to. Mm. And and was were the adjustments to do with with the colors they wanted where they wanted it to hang? Well, it was a very subtle palette that they wanted me to work with, and and in and what attracted them to my work was the color play. Part of driving the color play in this particular form, it's the chromatic book blocks form for people who want to look up my work. Um, when you look at the chromatic book blocks that I have on my website, or I think I have some in artsy.net, um, they're only in, in the whole display of like 30 of these things. Um, there are only two thread colors. And then the, um, the base color of the felt changes. And then the other thing that changes, but changes subtly, is the wood pieces that act as a clamp. Mm -hmm. And that intensifies the change. And they wanted the wood pieces to just be 
frames that all matched. So what that meant was that the color changes um, could not be as perceptible. And the work is fine. You know, I stand by the work, but I was disappointed that I couldn't take it to that next step. And I think it was just a matter of the designer not really understanding the process and fine. You have to say fine. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I, I think it's, it's quite a, a difficult thing to accept that yeah. um, when you work to commission, you really are having to check and you no longer have artistic control over it. Now I work better as a lone wolf. There's mm -hmm. certain, um, there's certain things I make that, that can be reproduced, that can be color shifted. And I've um, identified those for um, art consultants. Mm -hmm. Created a private room for them to go to. Of these are the things that within, within reason I can change either on scale or on color. Yeah. And we will consult. So. One of the things that students often ask us is, how do I come to a price for my work? How do I know what to charge? Do you have any insight into that for them? Well, that I think I may have just written about it or it's maybe it's in the next blog post coming up. Um, the pricing is an odd one. When I worked in clay, which I did for many years and I worked the street festival circuit, um, I had a rough formula that I started with, mm -hmm. which was an estimate of my cost of materials, which is always kind of loose, let's face it. Yeah. You, yeah. you, you measure your floss? I no. know. No, I, have, I do have some students that um, do get very, very concerned and do measure their, their floss. And I, yeah. I, I've actually suggested to them it would be easier to weigh it rather than measure it. Yeah, I mean, kudos, but boy, that is not me. But no. I would come up with an estimate of what I thought it probably cost me to make it. Mm -hmm. And then I would multiply it by 10 and see what that looked like. And that would be my wholesale. Mm -hmm. And then I would look at that and I would look at the, at people out there and see what they were selling similar things for. Mm -hmm. Would I double that price? Because you really do need to first price it wholesale. Um, and you shouldn't sell it wholesale unless it's for resale. It's important to, if you are going to move on to galleries, and you may not know that yet. But if you're going to move on to galleries, you must take into account the fact that they're going to take up to 50% of yeah. the sale price. I mean, they have to pay so many expenses. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And so you sell at that price, even out of your studio or at the street fair. Mm. And and so you you kind of have to work with what you see out there and what you think your costs are. And also there's this other emotional thing, which is, would it break my heart to sell it for that? Yes. Yeah. You yes. Because you, 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 you obviously have, to, when you spend so long doing something, you want your work to be valued. Yeah. And sometimes you just want to price it high because you want to live with it longer. 
<laughs> yes, that's true. You're not quite ready to let it go yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, that's true. We just want to live with it longer. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of oofy, but it's real important even as students not to drastically undercut um, like the people who trained you. Yeah, I don't know where you are in the market, but if you have work out in the marketplace, now your students shouldn't be charging the same amount you do, but they shouldn't be charging 10% of what you do yeah. either. Yeah. There is a student price, but it's not 10% of the master price. No, no. Because that becomes offensive to their own work and also to the master. So it's got to be somewhere in between. I think very often students forget that um, you've just made a, a very um, helpful dis distinguishment there. I think that's the word, is that the word distinguishment? Um, between the fact that, you know, what you may sell it for as an artist and what it may need to go into a gallery for are two very, very different things. Yes, yes, they are. And that's really important to know. Um, there are artists who have who who should be gallery artists okay that's what they're mm -hmm. where their work belongs and um they they have lost their gallery representation by selling at a discount out of their studios to clients yeah yeah i mean it's fine to sell at a discount to your family nobody cares mm -hmm. and and to your closest friends you know or to trade i mean that's fine but if your gallery, should you be represented, is spending money on you, they have to pay their rent, their lights, their employees, and then they are promoting you, advertising costs, mm -hmm. openings cost, being open everyday costs, having people on the floor saying, I really think you should buy so-and-so's work, costs money. Yeah. And so you are taking their money away, their legitimate money away by by selling out of your studio at a discount i i i have a, a friend who has a, a gallery or had a gallery some, uh -huh. some years ago and one of his biggest annoyances was that after they had finished doing a, a show mm -hmm. that um he well he would hear people going around during the show saying that oh well i won't buy it here i'll contact the artists later on yeah. Yeah, and see you know what, how much discount I can get. So he, I mean, that was one of his biggest bugbears about. Oh, about that's it. too. I mean, your price should be your price should be your price. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the good news is, when you sell it yourself, wow, you've made more money. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. And that helps pay for all the things that don't sell right away. Yeah. So yeah. I mean. Just look at it that way and, and just understand that galleries are in business. And when I still had um, people coming in to see other people's work inside my building, I can remember very clearly somebody saying, oh, I'm just going go to go to her studio. I, I, I can get a better price. I'm going, no, you, actually, you can't. Yeah. It's, no. I think from the gallery owner's perspective, if you can say that with complete confidence, yes. no, you can't. Be, I, I know this person won't yep. do that to me. Yeah. 
um, then that that's great. But it also um, means that you know you you as, as you obviously already have you build up people around you. You work with artists that you know won't do that. And the exactly. ones that do, then you're not going to continue to work. With. No, no, there are people I will not work with because of that or because of unreliability. You know that kind of stuff. Sure. Which I, I'm just going to drop this in here for your students too, um, just because. And this is a gallery director thing. What's the value of a resume? There, there are two values to, to them. I mean, for the gallery, a record of shows, it doesn't even matter how rinky-dink they are initially, okay? Mm -hmm. um, a, a record of exhibitions shows that you are serious and that you follow through. Yeah. And then reading other people's resumes for an artist gives you ideas of where you should be looking. Absolutely, yes. If you can see somebody that is in a similar uh -huh. field to yourself, that is aiming at a similar audience, then yeah. seeing their resume is really interesting. It should be really useful to you as well, yeah. if you're just starting out. Yeah, you can kind of, you can see somebody's trajectory and if their work appeals to you in some way, you can use it as a bit of a roadmap. Mm. It's very helpful. And I didn't figure that out till I was in my 50s. Geez, learn it now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they will. <laughs> Susan, it, it has been an absolute pleasure. I know that, that one of the last things I put on onto the um, notes that we've exchanged is if you have a, a, a funny story or an anecdote that you'd like to oh, finish yeah. off with. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, this one is my classic one right now. How on earth did I start doing um, computer-aided machine embroidery? I went to the state fair, Gail, mm -hmm. and the Minnesota State Fair is huge. It's almost the size of a world's fair. And um, one year when I went, I decided to go to the building where they demonstrate um, knives and food storage systems. And I turned a corner and there was Donald Duck being stitched out on a hands-free embroidery machine. Mm -hmm. And it just mesmerized me, not because it was hands-free and not because it was Donald Duck, but because it was a blue, like no other blue I had ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I decided I had to start working with machine embroidery. And it was, it was clearly an epiphany. And, and so I did everything I could um, to, to get a grant to get the machine. No, I had to get a loan. And, but I did finally get a grant to get my first set of software to learn how to digitize and, and then provide an exhibition from it. But we can all blame the Minnesota State Fair and Donald Duck. Thank you for I will never look at Donald Duck in quite the same way. Again. Oh, it was like the most ultra <laughs> ultramarine blue I have ever seen. <laughs> and so it's my state fair love story. <laughs> <laughs> Susan, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you oh, this afternoon. It really has. Thank you so much for your time and and just for your fast wealth experience as well. I, I know that our students now, all of our listeners, will really enjoy it. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much.
Thank you.